Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for Tuesday, May 31st. I am here with David Plotz, Slate's editor. This is Emily Bazelon talking. And we are very excited today to have a special guest, Yale historian David Blight, who is a super Civil War expert and is going to help us talk about the book Killer Angels by Michael Shara. This is a book that was published in 1974 and won a Pulitzer Prize, but really became a big hit 20 years later when the movie Gettysburg was made based on this book. And it has since then sold more than two and a half million copies. It's really become a classic of the Civil War. And since, as everyone knows, this is the sesquicentennial of the war. And we also thought particularly appropriate for Memorial Day. Sesquicentennial? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Sesquicentennial. Sesquicentennial. Sorry. Um, Sesquicentennial. That word takes practice. All right, David Plotz, since you're such a know-it-all today, tell us a little bit about how the book is laid out, because that's one of its most distinctive features. Okay. No, I'm not going to do that first. First, I have to do a little fanboy welcome to David Blight. It's like being on a podcast with uh, Bruce Springsteen for me. The greatest pleasure I've had in the last six months was listening to your Civil War and Reconstruction class, which is available on iTunes University, which I cannot recommend highly enough to people listening to this. Before you go out and read The Killer Angels, or if you've already read it, go and download David Blight's class. Listen to it. It's amazing. I'm sort of nervous. I'm sweating just uh, being on the same podcast with you. If you were in the room, I can't even imagine what I would be doing. I'd That's be, right. I'd be, it's a good thing. You're I'd be kneeling at your feet, probably. So thank oh, you for my joining goodness. us. Well, thank you very much. But I, I'm feeling bad for you. I'm not sure what you, what else you've been doing the last six months. I'm a little worried. <laughs> I read Grant's memoirs. And then after I read oh, Grant's yeah. memoirs, I thought, you know, goodness, I'd love to Learn some more about the Civil War. Well, Grant was an amazing writer, wasn't he? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit. Okay, so enough of my um, slavish, my slavish and embarrassing introduction. Yes. So the structure of the Killer Angels, it's the story of the three days of the Battle of Gettysburg, and it's told from inside the head of about, I didn't count, about a dozen different generals and colonels on both sides. Obviously, General Lee, um, General Longstreet, who's General Lee's 
deputy, the the two leading Confederate commanders, as well as uh, various other Confederate generals, and from several Union generals who I guess are somewhat less well-known. And notably, I think that my favorite character and probably everyone's favorite character is the Colonel Joshua Chamberlain, who is a colonel who played a critical role in the Battle of Little Round Top. And we are in their heads as they experience the Battle of Gettysburg over these three days in July 1863. So, David Blight, one question I have about this book is it has made Gettysburg seem incredibly central to the war. And so I wonder if that's true, if the book has made us overemphasize the Civil War and if there are other ways in which it's really affected our perceptions of Civil War history. Well, Gettysburg was extremely important as a turning point in the war. It it repulses Lee's second invasion of the North. And had that invasion succeeded, or at least succeeded to the extent that he could have threatened the city of Philadelphia and continued to take the war to Northern soil, um, it's entirely possible the Confederacy could have won a version of victory for them. However, I do think Michael Shara overplays to some degree, the ultimate significance of Gettysburg in the entire scheme of the war. He says several times in the book that the war was lost at Gettysburg, that Lee's decisions lost the war, quote unquote. Well, there are plenty of other places that are uh, also turning points. And after Gettysburg, despite the fact that it was a decisive defeat for the South, There still was a chance, certainly in 1864, that the Confederacy still could have fought this war out to a stalemate and some kind of negotiated peace. It was by no means over at Gettysburg, and it is not the only place the war was lost. However, it was a truly significant turning point. And of course, it's the, um, it's the bloodiest sequence of battles in the entire war. Uh, the three days at Gettysburg were the largest casualties in one place during the entire war. It wasn't the single bloodiest day of the war. That happens to have been Antietam. Uh, but Gettysburg was terribly important. There's no question about that. One of the things that st- struck me is that there's a, a line, I think it's Chamberlain is talking, and he actually says, okay, if we lose this battle and the South gains victory, there are going to be three countries on this continent. This is a slightly off point. But that was an interesting idea to me, which had never occurred to me. It occurred to me that if had the Confederacy won the war, not lost the war, and thus allowed been allowed to remain an independent nation, that there would have been two nations in the United States. There would have been a a union and confederacy. Is there a school of thought which says there would have been a third Western nation that developed had the war ended the way the Confederacy wanted? I'm not sure about a school of thought, but it's certainly one of those interesting counterfactuals worth playing out. Uh, In many ways, of course, the war was caused by westward expansion and especially this huge dilemma of the expansion of slavery, slave labor versus uh, free labor. Uh, It's possible that if the South wins its independence and a Confederate States of America, those 11 states, form an independent country, an independent government, now you'd have had a Confederate States of America and a United States of America still competing for the Great West for the land, the soil, the riches, the resources of the American West. Uh, Who knows what would have happened to California, which was, of course, already in the Union as a free state. 
who knows what would have happened to the great Northwest and what, what was left of the, the state-making process of the great Southwest. So, yeah, that's a kind of a line there that captures almost too much in a single phrase. Uh, and Shar is very good at that, I mean, because it leaves us thinking about something. Speaking of the U.S. Army, one of the things I found really affecting about this book is that several of the generals, in particular Lee and Longstreet, reflect on the relationships they had with the people on the other side when they were all serving together in the U.S. Army. And there are these questions about divided loyalty that are really brought to the fore. Longstreet in particular, even though he's obviously fighting for the South and is incredibly important to their war effort, he expresses right. a lot of doubt along the way about the role he's playing. And it made me feel that sense that these people as an army and as a kind of military unit were, yeah. had really been connected. Although, to one thing I felt that was sort of a cop out is that we – so we see in particular with, with Armistead, Armistead's relationship right. to, to Hancock. Scott Hancock, right. that we hear Armistead talking about how important that is to him. We never get to hear the, the union side soldiers – The union side of this, which is that these are – yes, they were our brothers. On the other hand, they are brothers who have – committed an incredible act of betrayal, particularly those right. who are West Point graduates, those who were right. regular U.S. Army. Right. And there's yeah. an asymmetry in the book in that we're hearing from the most important Southern commanders, Lee and Longstreet. But on the Union side, General Meade, who's in charge of the Battle of Gettysburg, is not. Hardly. He's, yeah. he's hardly in the book. He seems like a kind of irritable, peacock-like man. We don't really hear from the, the Union high command much at all. It's, it's a colonel's war on that side. Right. And that seems to me that's part of the mythology, or maybe it's accurate, that, mm -hmm. in fact, the Union generals just generally stank and General Meade <laughs> didn't matter at Gettysburg, that he doesn't get any credit. Do you think that's Well, right? I'm not sure that's the case. I think Shara went with the characters who were the best characters uh, in some ways. I mean, let's remember this is a novel. And uh, the Lee Longstreet dispute was a huge post-war argument over the nature of the Confederate war effort and why they lost here or why they won there. What is that dispute? After the war, Lee only lived until 1870, and he dies early in the process of post-war memorialization, and he dies a heroic embodiment of the noble lost cause, that is, this cluster of beliefs that's evolving there in the 1860s and 1870s, that somehow the Confederacy had fought you know, a noble effort for their homeland, for their sovereignty, for their way of life, and that they had never really fought for slavery. And this argument was always made about Lee, that he never fought for slavery. He simply fought for his state, for his region, for his people. But then Lee is gone. And now you still have to explain Confederate defeat. So why did the South lose? And this may seem like we're boiling it down here, but this is exactly what happened in the South. Lee's former lieutenants, that is, his, many of his former generals, uh, formed what was called the Southern Historical Association, and they published what were called the Southern Historical Papers. Uh, these were essays, articles, speeches, one after another, beginning in the early 1870s and then throughout that decade. And one of the biggest disputes that went on was the place and the role of Longstreet at Gettysburg. And he started criticizing Lee, right? He went public uh, by saying that he thought Lee's decision to remain on the offensive, especially the third day at Gettysburg, the famous Pickett's Charge, that when Lee made that choice, that that committed so much of the Confederate Army and to an 
utter and horrifying defeat on the third day of July, that that became then the turning point of the war, and it turned the war around. And Longstreet did, to a degree at least, publicly blame Lee for that. Well, let's remember that Lee had blamed himself for that. And right. it even offered his resignation in, I believe, August of 1863. But to Lee's former generals, people like Jubal Early and A.P. Hill and others who had survived the war, they hated Longstreet. But one of the principal reasons they hated Longstreet was not so much his resistance to Lee's offensive strategy at Gettysburg, but but in the post-war era, Longstreet became a Republican. Which means that he helped with Reconstruction, right? Exactly. He went back to Georgia. He said publicly, give it up, my brothers and my friends. We lost this war. We must build a new society. He became a railroad man, a Republican. And that was about the worst thing you could do in Reconstruction Georgia or, for that matter, any other of the ex-Confederate states. And Longstreet made himself into a kind of uh, arch-villain, or at least his enemies made him into a large arch-villain. It sounds a bit odd today, but this story that Longstreet not only opposed Lee's strategy of this offensive attack on the third day at Gettysburg, but that he actually acted slowly. This old story, they know Longstreet was late at Gettysburg, or Longstreet was slow on the third day at Gettysburg, and that's why the Confederacy lost. It was the search for a scapegoat. I mean, the, the military truth here is that that attack that we know as Pickett's Charge, that fateful third day at Gettysburg, would probably have failed horribly whether it started one hour earlier or one hour later and no matter who had led it. They were attacking a rising high ground, extremely well defended, across wide open fields. And Lee actually never blamed Longstreet for anything, uh, but Lee's other generals, his lieutenants, did. Now, what Michael Shara has done with this book, and it, to me it's always been the central theme of the book, is he takes this old, old debate, not only over whether Longstreet was the villain at Gettysburg and caused Lee to fail, but he takes this old debate over offensive versus defensive tactics and strategies in the Civil War, and he plays it out in this book through these characters. Any careful reader of The Killer Angels realizes that James Longstreet is in this book to represent a kind of modern defensive warrior who no longer believes in that old Napoleonic 18th and 19th century method of making war, line your men up, rely on their superior courage and marksmanship, and march them across open fields against an enemy. Longstreet believed in maneuver. He wanted to choose better ground. He wanted to choose higher ground. He wanted to move south, back southward, and get between Meade's army and Washington, D.C. He wanted, because they were on enemy soil, living off the land, losing their supply lines, Longstreet's approach to this, and he argues it again and again and again with Lee, and you get to hear some of those you know, manufactured conversations that Shara gives us in Lee's tent or outside Lee's tent. Longstreet wanted the Confederate Army to be more defensive, even as they were the invading force on enemy soil. So what you got here is a kind of right after the Vietnam War era argument in the military history of the Civil War 
over whether that war was lost by Robert E. Lee in more places than just Gettysburg because of his constant offensive tactics, or whether it might have been more successful for the Confederacy had they remained on the defensive and, in fact, never invaded the North at all. So that's a major sub-theme in this book. I want to talk a little bit about this Vietnam question because obviously this book is published right at the end of Vietnam, which is a war that the U.S. had lost effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think what is so appealing to a modern reader about this book, and Emily, you can chime in if you feel this way, is the sense that there can be an order to war, that war can be played out in a neat way on battlefields by generals who are, you know, looking at maps and neatly aligning their troops and these troops clash in a in a relatively systematic orderly way and that is how the war is is engaged and yet it's a total failure well it's a failure but also that the romance of that by the time there's not a single battle in vietnam that is fought in the way that these battles are fought i mean maybe there are a couple of battles in korea i mean there there are battles that are very sort of set piece battles in world war ii but there are no the wars that we are fighting today the wars that we will fight into the future there are going to be no generals who behave in the way that these generals behave. There will be no pickets charge. There will be no charges of this nature. And they're all humane. They're all deeply humane men. Although they are slaughtering their troops. We do have to make that point. Well, they are. They're making decisions that end in the mass death of their men. One of Shara's great successes, one of his secrets here, I think, is that he really humanizes these people. They're all, in their own way, articulate. They're humane. They love their families. They love their brothers in arms. They even love some of their brothers in arms on the other side. They have tremendous respect for their enemy. This is a noble contest among great warriors at the end of the Vietnam War. I mean, in other words, there's nothing disillusioning about the story of the killer angels. Well, no, no, but that's not true. I mean, there's nothing disillusioning Uh in the book, but what it is behind it, which is that General Lee and has sent thousands of men needlessly to their death and believes yeah. that these are honorable deaths. I also want to talk a little bit about the history of the book, because when it was published in 1974, it is true that it won the Pulitzer Prize. However, right. no one bought it. And, you know, Shara says that he shopped Well, that's it. not quite true. It sold pretty well in the 1970s. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe I'm wrong. I was maybe you have the numbers, but uh, I used to see it all over the place back then. (laughs) All right. Well, I was I found an interview with Shara's son in which he said that his father had gone to 14 publishers before he could get the book into print. He was paid thirty five hundred dollars for it. And the first printing was around five thousand copies. And that it really wasn't until the early 90s that it became this mega bestseller. And so Jeffrey Shara, Michael Shara's son's theory was that at Vietnam, um, at that time, nobody wanted to read a history of these brilliant generals, that th- we just weren't at a moment where we sure. could valorize war and commanders in that way. There's no doubt a lot of truth to that. I mean, in Ken Burns' film series in 1990, no doubt stimulated a huge sale of this book. And then, of course, the movie. Right. And Ken Burns said that his series was inspired by this book. This book and Robert Penwarren and a few others were Ken's Bibles. But I can tell you this. I used to take high school groups to Gettysburg in the 1970s. I was a high school teacher in Michigan from 1971 to 78. And on one of those trips, it was one of the latter ones, probably about 1977, I took my group of kids up on Little Round Top. I always did this. Took them that walkway up to where the 20th Main Monument is, up in those woods, right where the 20th Main had stood. You read about it in the book. That's where the right wheel occurred. The big stone is still there, and there's the 20th Main Monument. I trekked them up that path, as I always did, and I 
would read a passage from the Killer Angels about that very maneuver on that site. And I'll never forget it because I got there and there were no less than about four or five other people doing exactly the same thing with the same book. That's (laughs) awesome. Now, that doesn't tell you that it's a bestseller, but it does tell you that the book was already being carried around by people who went, at least who went to Gettysburg. Well, that really resonates with me. My dad read this book to me and my sisters out loud many times when I was growing up. Out loud. It's his favorite book. He is really not a big reader of novels. He absolutely is in love with the drama of this book. And when my children were born, I think really like before they were out of diapers, he started asking if they were ready to hear it. Well, what do you think is the secret? Is it the prose? Is it just the great storytelling? You know, I don't think the prose is the winner here. I mean, I was talking with another colleague of ours, John Swansburg, this morning because Uh he started the book and was kind of underwhelmed. And he said, look, you know, it's kind of sentimental and overwritten in places. And are you really going to defend all the writing in this book? And then I started feeling a little sheepish for my utter fandom. I I don't think I agree with that. I would not, you know, put this... You know, the prose is as standing with, you know, the great novels of our time. But I actually think getting away from sort of these stage speeches that David talked about a moment ago, but the inside the head and the kind of casual flow of thought processes that you hear, it's very appealing. It's about men at war. I find Longstreet and Chamberlain to be utterly winning characters. I would have listened to them think about anything, really. Right. And when you're inside their heads, you are inside the heads of men under the tremendous pressure of war, they're trying to remain calm. They're trying to make sense. They're trying to make decisions. They have a wounded foot. In Chamberlain's case, you've got him always looking at his brother to make sure his brother is safe. The Shara is quite effective at this, and he does it in that very terse, declarative kind of style. It's men under this horrifying pressure of making war. I think that pulls the book along. Then there are those moments when you you get these visions of landscapes and you get lots of descriptions of stone boulders and you get the hills in the distance and so on. But I even think that has something to do with the book's success because anyone who has been to the Gettysburg battlefield and then picks up this book, it suddenly is so easy to visualize the story. And the converse, which is that I'm desperate to go to Gettysburg now. The book will have all the more resonance once you see the landscape. And he's very careful about that. What he describes there on Little Round Top or when he takes... Chamberlain and his remnant up behind where Pickett's Charge occurred so they can watch, so we can be spectators of Pickett's Charge. He has the landscape down. It's it's really quite compelling. And I think he's, his model is probably Hemingway in terms of this kind of terse prose. He's not Hemingway, but I think that's probably his model. Right before I started listening to David Blight's class and before I read this, I read Grant's memoirs. Yeah. Which are written in the 1880s, and you're a, really on a big civil war. I'm on a total trip. civil war tear. God. Total tear. Well, hang in there. There's four more years to the sesquicentennial. <laughs> but the striking thing about Grant's memoirs, incidentally, anyone who has not read them and is interested in the subject must go and read because Grant is an incredible. Would you stop berating writer. everyone into doing all the reading and listening that <laughs> right, you well, are doing? All right, whatever. But the striking contrast between the the war that Grant is describing. And mm-hmm. the war as Shara portrays, there's very little sentimentality in Grant's memoir. His mm-hmm. accounts of battles are not they are not fraught with emotion. They're no. very strategic and detailed and about what train line we're cutting and right. how we're encircling this or that army. And it's no less gripping. But you don't you don't get the sense that Grant is a character, at least as he portrays himself. Well, Grant is not only not romantic, he's anti-romantic. He didn't seem to have a romantic bone in his body. And actually his memoirs are in great part based on 
his own revisiting of his wartime daily dispatches. What you get in Grant's memoirs are, is his rewriting of his field dispatches. And if one goes and reads those, or at least some of those dispatches, what you see is this terse, declarative kind of writing, always in clear, perfect sentences. That These are Grant's reports. You know, here's the railroad line we cut. Here's where my supply line was. This was the date we moved against such and such a town and so on and so forth. And yet there are a few moments in Grant's massive two-volume memoir where you do actually – they're very rare, but you do actually see him letting down his guard. One of them was when he's describing Shiloh because that was the first major battlefield when he saw the kind of carnage that this war was going to bring. And he describes how you could walk across the field and never touch the right. ground and walk on bodies. And then he lets down his guard also when he's describing the surrender at Appomattox. That became, you know, a very emotional description. But it's about the only time in hundreds of pages where you, you think, oh, oh, this guy actually had some emotion about all this killing. And Shara, by comparison, is giving us a lot of emotion throughout. Is oh, God, this book yes. a pro-war and anti-war book? What do you guys think? Well, say? that's a great question. I used to ask that very question with my students over the years of teaching this book for I don't God knows how many times I've taught it. That's one of the questions I give them to write about, uh, among others. And I've had wildly different responses. Some students read it and think it's oh, it's pro-war. It's you know, it's viciously pro-war. It's sentimentalized and so on. So others read it and think, oh, no, 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 I came away hating war. And, and these men were reluctant warriors. You know, you got a Joshua Chamberlain who's this intellectual, this academic, this abolitionist who's only reluctantly there but must fight. I think in the end, I mean, if, if I have to decide on that one, I do think it's a, it's in the end a highly sentimental depiction of war. Uh, the blood is there, but we do not get the kind of of brutally realistic descriptions of what war did to human bodies. Now and then we get a bayoneted belly and a man shot in the face, and we get lots of descriptions of people being killed, and we get numbers of the dead, and we get Shara stepping on the dead. And I mean, it's there, but it's not like an Ambrose Bierce story. It's not like so many of these hopelessly fragmented uh, bitterly anti-war novels about Vietnam, for example. Uh, it's, it's not a, a World War I uh, kind of story. In the end, this is a story of heroic warriors. It especially struck me when I was reading the afterword about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yes, he was an intellectual. He was a Bowdoin professor, at, later right. elected president of Bowdoin. But it's all about how he was wounded six times. He was cited yeah. for bravery in action four times. I mean, he turns into this, like, soldier rock star, even though oh, it's that, totally that, unlikely the that ideal. he would do that. And frankly, I don't know this for a fact, but I would bet anything that he was drawing in part off Bruce Catton because what Shara gives us in the end is a war that's still full of mystery. How many times do we hear Chamberlain or someone else in this book saying, one day I'll come back here and then maybe I'll understand it. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. That sense of mystery of what's it all about? Why are we really here? Americans love that about the Civil War because it keeps it, it keeps it heroic. If we don't have to actually completely explain what it was really about or actually completely have to face the sheer scale of 
suffering and death and loss and destruction that that war brought about. What I think you get from the killer angels is a kind of soft tragedy. I think that's right. And that's partly why it works still, I think. It's because that's the kind of tragedy most American writers, or as William Dean Howells put it in 1900, indeed referring to the Civil War, he said, what Americans always like is a tragedy as long as it has a happy ending. Mm -hmm. And we can keep returning to this tragedy because we don't fully understand it. Right. Though I'm a Washingtonian, I guess I'm not a Southerner and have no sympathy for the cause of the Confederacy and never have. One thing Mm -hmm. that strikes me as interesting in light of the kind of wars we're fighting today is the Confederacy as a happily suicidal cause. And we have that embodied most obviously in General Richard Garnett, who, as as Shara portrays him, rides a picket guard, the only man on a horse, simply to redeem his honor, which has been stained by an accusation from Stonewall Jackson that he is unable to rebut an accusation of cowardice and that he therefore, to restore his honor, he goes and gets himself killed. Throughout all the scenes, the Confederate generals gathering and discussing and talking, the sense of honor and the honor in death that they welcome. And Longstreet, of course, is the tonic to this Longstreet saying our men die just as dead as theirs. But in an age where suicidal terrorism is the main object of discussion when we talk about war. It's kind of disturbing to think about the Confederacy aligned somewhere on that same spectrum, that we don't fight war to avoid death. We fight war because death is in some sense valuable and honorable and great. Now, that's a very interesting point, that Garnett character. And it's possible, although I don't know, that Shara was really playing here off a little bit of William Faulkner or Robert Penn Warren because Warren has a character in his greatest work, All the King's Men, uh, Kaz Mastern, uh, who <laughs> becomes a suicidal Confederate soldier during the Civil War and seeks his death, you know, wants to die, wants to die on the battlefield. And it takes a very long time before he finally gets wounded and dies in a hospital. But his reason to want to die is because he had committed a terrible act of adultery. He had had sex with a former slave and plus his best friend's wife. And it was very, very deeply complicated. What we get in Garnet is somebody who wants his death because it would save his honor. And Shara may at that point have been fully aware of a, of a new a new trend in scholarship at that point. Historians like Bertram Wyatt Brown were already writing about this whole complicated notion of Southern honor. Yeah, you know, and, and nothing lost but honor if you don't die on the battlefield. C. Van Woodward used to argue this, that the South can be, if we need it in this country, the, the seat, the place of our original sin. And no original sin quite like slavery and the Confederacy's defense of it in that war. So I think you do get here a story of a bunch of noble men caught up in defending their society, their region, their people, their home. Uh, but in the end, from the very beginning here, we know the end, don't we? We know their cause is doomed. And it's almost Shakespearean in that sense. We know how it's going to end. We just got to stay with it because the characters are so interesting to take us there. Well, and also because we're all Americans now, to have a book that portrays all of that heroism and never really, you know, fully condemns the South is comforting because these are our countrymen and so we can. But if you were a Southerner, if you lived in Atlanta and not New Haven. I bet the people. Do you think you'd find this book? 
appealing? Yes, I really do. I mean, it is true that the South loses, but the South comes out seeming fully dramatized, embodied. It has its honor I, intact. I guess, but Longstreet is the hero. Longstreet, who doesn't believe in the cause, doesn't want to fight. But really and, not I, a hero. Lee, really? I read this book and I came away thinking, what an awful man. I didn't understand what the appeal of Lee was supposed to be at all. I didn't understand I why he was I think he's very loved. sympathetic to Lee in the sense that, you know, Lee, first of all, is physically mm. ill in the book and there are some very loving yeah. descriptions of how valiantly he's persevering despite his ill health and this kind of these he's images very Christian he's always praying he's always praying he's on his horse the men are so loving of him and Longstreet oh, yeah. says look the man is not a brilliant tactician but that doesn't matter because but he's a great he, leader exactly yeah. there's this sort of yeah. moment where he erupts to a kind of silly English character named Fremantle Fremantle and he, yeah, right and he yeah. gives this whole talk about Lee which I am actually going to find yeah. he says Colonel let me explain something. The secret of General Lee is that men love him and follow him with faith in him. That's one secret. The next secret is that Lee makes a decision and he moves with guts. And then he says, but tactics? God, man, we don't win because of tricks. What were the tactics at Malvern Hill? What were the tactics Mm -hmm. at Fredericksburg when we got down behind a bloody stone wall and shot the bloody hell out of them as they came up, wave after wave? Bravest thing you ever saw because, listen, there are some damn good boys across the way. Make no mistake on that. It's just this sense that, you know, he was wrong, right? But he was wrong in this kind of Utterly romanticized. Right. But just one point on that. And I don't know if this is intentional from Sharp, but again, contrasting this. Grant is the general and it's there's none of this romance. It's all tactics and he wins the war. He just, you know, cuts them up, cuts them up, cuts them up and then it's over. I don't think there's any question about this. I mean, he's not around for us to ask him, but his target here was Lee on the pedestal, the so-called marble man. And there had actually been a book out. It had come out right before this or right after this? I forget. I think right before this by Alan T. Nolan, which was called The Marble Man. And this was a moment in scholarship on Robert E. Lee. I mean, Lee had been sacrosanct and he had been made so by the famous three-volume biography by Douglas Southall Freeman back in the 30s and 40s. And then the four volumes that Freeman wrote called Lee's Lieutenants. Lee had been made into this God. He had been made into, you know, the second most important figure of the Civil War next to Lincoln and to many people, the most important, the infallible Robert E. Lee, the godlike Robert E. Lee. Shara is using Longstreet to explode Lee off that marble pedestal down to this soldier who made decisions, a lot of which were huge mistakes and got thousands of men killed who nevertheless came out of the war as this noble embodiment of the lost cause. You know, a cause doomed, but a cause nevertheless, in their view, just. I want to shift the discussion a little bit to a question of Northern honor, which I think gets raised in the middle of the book when Joshua Chamberlain, the colonel from Maine, has an encounter with a black man, probably a yeah. slave who's run away. And there's yeah. this very physical description of this man and then the sense that Chamberlain has actually seen very few black people in Maine. And Shara writes, Chamberlain's curiosity about the man was natural and friendly, but there was a reserve in it, an unexpected caution. The man was really very black. Chamberlain felt an oddness, a crawly hesitation, not wanting to touch him. He shook his head, amazed at himself. I've always read that passage as actually brilliant and honest, because that's Shara, I think, trying to capture the subliminal and sometimes overt racism of Union soldiers who were themselves nevertheless 
devoted to destroying slavery. If we're to really, really understand the Union war effort and the hundreds of thousands of men in those Union armies, even the well-educated Joshua Chamberlains of Bowdoin College, we need to understand how they could, on the one hand, hold these this whole variety of, of racist views born of, you know, the world they grew up in, and at the same time believe they had to fight this war to destroy this system to conquer the South. I don't know that that episode ever happened. In fact, I think Shara is inventing that episode, but it so be it. Invented. It's fiction. It's fiction. But the fact that this man is starkly black and Chamberlain himself feels uncomfortable, doesn't know what to do with that, would be a very typical Union soldier's reaction. I mean, even more typical might be, you know, some racist language coming out of even of a Chamberlain's mouth. On the other hand, you also get that moment earlier in the book where when Chamberlain is trying to convince those Union deserters to join up rather than remain prisoners, and he gives that speech where he kneels down, he grabs a handful of the soil and says, this is free land, this is free soil, we're fighting to keep this free. I don't know that Chamberlain ever made that particular speech either, but there's a certain ring of truth to that as well. A lot of Yankee, New England, modestly abolitionist officers really did believe they were fighting for that, that as Lincoln would later put it, you know, to give freedom to the slave is to secure freedom to the free. So there are those moments when Shara is manipulating the race question, I think, relatively effectively. The problem he has here, though, of course, is, is if he's true to the record, there were no black troops in that particular Union Army yet. They were being recruited by then, by July of 1863, into the Union Army. But there were no black troops in Meade's army. The only blacks around Gettysburg were camp hands. And, of course, there were plenty of blacks on the other side. We don't get that story here. Uh, that is former slaves who were working as servants, if you want to call them that, in the Confederate forces. And Lee's army, as we now know, re-enslaved some free blacks in Pennsylvania and took them back into Virginia. Which, for all we know, I mean, could have happened to this character in the book because – and oh, I sure. found this quite striking. They don't know what to do with him. And so Chamberlain says, OK, yeah. we'll give him a little food and let him go and, like, try to point him in the direction of home. It's very unsatisfying as a modern reader, although I agree with you that the honesty of it is – Well, he's a brazen. wandering fugitive slave or a wandering, you know, fugitive free black man. He's that – wandering black person there who, uh, oh, by the way, the war is all about him, but he has exactly. no central role. <laughs> and Chamberlain says that. And yet exactly. it, the actual, right. you know, being of him is too complicated for them to deal yeah. with effectively. But it's one of those moments where you can begin to figure out where to put your feet on your question of, is, is this an anti-war book or pro-war book? And I mean, in the end, that may not matter. And it may not have necessarily been what Shara was after. But it is a book that is arguing that wars do have reasons and causes. It is our obligation to discern those reasons and causes. And sometimes they have results that make the world better despite all the horror that one has to endure. One of the things that I think is so wonderful about your Civil War and Reconstruction class is the way in which it intentionally, I assume, downplays the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And it says that when we think about the Civil War, we do tend to think about the battlefield. We tend to think about yeah. these magical places and the story, this incredible story that Michael Shara has told us. But as a result, we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about the actual causes and we don't think about mm -hmm. the aftermath. We don't think about Reconstruction. I didn't know. I'm a reasonably well-educated person. I did not know 
anything about Reconstruction before I... Don't look at me like that, Oh, my God. Reconstruction is totally fascinating. Now you have to get obsessed (laughs) with Reconstruction. It's like even more fun and interesting than the war. And actually, I didn't even know much about the period before the war. Well, were you taught the Civil War with simply without the aftermath? I'm sure. Were they doing at St. Albans High School, David I'm sure they were. I'm sure we were taught something about Reconstruction, but the the St. Albans. Wow, that should have been a great education. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting because... You know, I don't deny my students the story of the battlefield and of strategy and and why the North wins and the South loses. I mean, I do a fair amount of that, and I certainly assign readings that do that. And I think military history is extremely important. But I guess it is the grain against which I, I tend to teach to a degree because I think we still grow up in this country. Uh, generation after generation, if we're attracted to this event and this story, we're really attracted to the contest but not necessarily to its causes and consequences. As Frederick Douglass once said, he said, you know, it's it's not just about the fight. It's about the meaning of the fight. It would be like studying nothing but the military tactics and strategy and weaponry of World War II without ever examining what it was about, you know, or for that matter, any other major war. What was it actually about in the end? And we now have a massive scholarship, let's face it, that gets us into the heads of common soldiers and generals and the home front. And uh, people had a lot of ideas about what it was really about. And also we learn over and over and over that, you know, why young men actually join armies, enlist, go to war, fight, shoulder a musket, etc., is often not at all the same question uh, as, you know, why this war happened or what its meaning and consequences are. This is the problem you always face out there. All of us who go out and give public talks all the time, when people say, well, the war couldn't have been about slavery because the vast majority of Confederate soldiers never owned any slaves, or they'll say, my great-great-grandfather didn't own any slaves, so it couldn't have been about slavery. But, of course... Why your great-great-grandfather was in the army uh, is an entirely different matter from Hmm. why the South seceded from the Union. So in this year of our sesquicentennial, yeah, that Mm -hmm. was good. Thank you. David Blight, you have a new book coming out. It's called American Oracle, The Civil War in the Civil Rights Era. And I wonder what you're planning to argue and say in your new work. Thank you. The book is, is really a study of four major American writers during the 1950s and 60s, during the civil rights era, as they were remembering and writing about the Civil War. Uh, they're Robert Penn Warren, the great Southern poet, novelist, Bruce Catton, uh, the famous and most widely read popular historian of the Civil War ever, Edmund Wilson, the great literary critic who wrote the huge book Patriotic Gore in 1962, a literary history of the Civil War, which had a a massive reaction and following. And then lastly, James Baldwin, the African-American novelist essayist. And in some ways, Baldwin seems like the odd one out because he, he rarely wrote explicitly about the war itself. But James Baldwin, especially in his nonfiction, in the essay form, his famous essay collections, he was always writing about the nature of American history and always writing about the legacies of slavery. And indeed, in his most famous work, The Fire Next Time, published in 1963 at the 100th anniversary of emancipation, he wrote, in effect, a manifesto about the place of race and slavery in American memory. And it was uh, it was the bestseller in the United States for about six months 
1963. And then I end the book with an epilogue, actually, about Ralph Ellison. So what I've simply done is taken four very different, five really, very different kinds of writers and examined them in detail in terms of how they used uh, the Civil War and its extended legacies, you know, writ large, to understand where we were at the centennial of this event. And I use that as a way then of thinking ahead till now about, so where have we come, you know, 50 years later at the 150th anniversary. I've been really taken aback by how happy people like David Plotz are to become obsessed with the war again. And, you know, the New York Times has done this amazing feature called Disunion, which oh, I, mean, yeah. I hope it's been really popular. I feel like everyone I know has been talking about I it. I think it has been. And they're continuing it day by day. They're trying. Well, we usually end these book clubs by talking about whether we would recommend the book to other people. I feel like with this book, that's kind of a question we don't really need to answer, at least in this group, it seems like everyone. Oh, I, I think definitely. The Killer Angels is, is a gripping, page-turning story. I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of people whose interest in this event has been stimulated by this book. Its connection to that movie is almost unfortunate in my view. Yeah, the movie I gather wasn't very good. So this is, Ugh, that's actually four a good and a thing, half right? Hours. Yeah. All right, Turner we don't Broadcast. need the movie this time. You could read the book faster than you could see the movie. That's right. Absolutely. It's a, it's a triumph of prose over film. Um, David Blight, thank you so much for joining us. It was really just a pleasure and um, Oh, wonderful. the pleasure was mine. This was great fun. Oh, good. And not only we hope for David Plotz, you are a big fan. Hopefully yeah. our listeners will also <laughs> benefit from this. Thanks so much for Thank David you. Plotz and David Blight. I'm Emily Bazelon. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>